0: Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Andy Peloquin. Andy, go ahead and tell us a little about yourself and about the, the series of books that you've written.
1: Hey, Carson. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, great job getting my name right. Usually people, they, they mangle it. Uh, so my name is actually pronounced Peloquin. It's French-Canadian, but I just say Peloquin, so I don't sound like a total douche. But <laughs> um, for those of you who have never heard my voice or have never seen my name, which I'm sure is many of you, I am a fantasy and science fiction author. I actually have five series. Um, published to date. So dark fantasy, assassins, thieves, uh, special operators in both sci-fi and fantasy, just kind of the darker side of the genre, which is honestly what I love to read and write.
0: Perfect. And on your website, this is awesome because you not only have the list of world building order that you can read, but chronological as well.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I wrote the stories. I the, the chronology kind of varies from series to series. The one that's first in chronological order is actually the one that I wrote last. And, uh, you know, just kind of like... I, I don't know about you if you're a Star Wars guy, but when I watch Star Wars for me, it's always four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. You know, for, for the chronology was never important. It was, you know, the way that the, bro- the world was built and created that makes me want to watch it more than anything else. So that's kind of how I approach my stories, too.
0: Perfect. And so what was the genesis of the, the story?
1: Oh, man, that's that's a tough one. I, you know, it kind of goes back to why did I get into writing in the first place? Yeah, why did you get into um, writing in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the question that always comes up. Um, I, You know, I, I started writing in school, sort of creative writing stuff with a teacher who was really passionate about the arts and sciences. And I discovered that I was good at just, you know, sort of the creative turn of phrase, haikus and poems and short stories and stuff. And I didn't really do anything with it until I was in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a series that I read that made me want to write. It was the the Night Angel series by Brent Weeks. Everybody knows, you know, Durzo Blint, total badass. Right. But there were only three books and m- much of it was focused on Kylar. And I wanted more of Durzo. I wanted more of the the badassery, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and when I found out that he wasn't going to do any more, that it was just three and done, I was like, well, I'm going to do my own. So that was actually what gave birth to my first character, the Hunter of Rammus. It's basically a night angel-esque character in the sense that he's, you know, sort of functionally immortal, badass dagger, some pretty cool powers, uh, you know, 40s age more or less. So there's none of these training montages. There's none of the, you know, the the insecurities of a young character. It's just straight up badass doing badass things he
0: knows what he's doing and he's out to do it
1: exactly i love i love writing stories that tell of people sort of at the peak of their powers instead of going through the training scenes which which can be fun Mm -hmm. but when when the characters are at the peak of their physical abilities that's when you get to explore the emotional aspect yeah you get to see them doing all the cool stuff just like right at the cool stuff. So even if they don't progress physically, they progress emotionally in really, really interesting ways that you don't get to see with the sort of, you know, training montage style fantasy. Like they do, those characters do progress emotionally, but it's often more focused about their physical progression. Whereas if you take a character who is already at sort of the peak of his abilities, you don't need to, or, or her abilities, you don't need to develop them much physically. And in fact, that physical development doesn't it's kind of relegated to the background because it's their emotional or their psychological development that becomes so important and for me that ends up being more interesting you know i i'm not a young reader anymore you know i don't need to see the character you know becoming a man or becoming a woman or coming into their power i want to see you know issues that are relevant to who i am so my character of the hunter he's struggling with a kid who's not his own, but he's sort of taken under his wing. And that was super relevant for me because I was just getting together with with my current wife at the time and her kids, you know, being a stepfather. So it was just like immediately relevant in this character that I was writing. So it was easy to channel my real life struggles into this character's problems.
0: Right. And that's what's so great about stories in general is you can find something that relates to you. Absolutely. I love fantasy because... Even though it can relate to you, it can be in a totally fantastic world and you can still enjoy being immersed in a different world and and kind of take you out of real life.
1: And it's not like a, you know, like a self-help book that is being sort of shoved down your throat or fed to you, you know, wholesale. It's like these little bits and pieces that jump out at you from within the story that's keeping you engaged. Honestly, maybe five percent of the whole story is going to be something that you take away, some pithy lesson or some you know, something that is important or that sticks in your brain psychologically. The rest is just an awesome story. But at the end of the day, it's those 5% of things that stick because of the story frame that it's set up in.
0: Well, and I'm, I found it interesting, you know, the more I've read, the more a character has like stuck with me. Like I still can relate to, to Frodo and like adapt to, he, he's influenced my life. In, in some small way or like Randall Thor from Wheel of Time or something, you know? Yeah. Like I take a piece of that person with me each time.
1: Absolutely. And I think the more that we read, and, and I've found for me as a writer, the more that I engage with these characters, whether it's the characters that I'm writing or reading, the more I begin to understand the people around me. I mean, a super, super good example is, or or for me, that I found amazing was uh, Kaladin's struggle with depression in Rhythm of War, the, the fourth of the Stormlight Archives. It's hard to understand depression because people who are depressed, maybe they don't know how to put it into words. But then when, when Sanderson describes how the character was feeling, it kind of gives you an insight into it. So when you see someone else who's depressed, you think about, or I think about, okay, how did he describe it? You know, the, the weight on his chest or the feeling of, you know, darkness or whatever it is. And that kind of helps me relate to people. So the, honestly, as a writer, I feel like it's made me so much more empathetic with people around me because of the fact that I live so much in someone else else's head
0: that's a great thing about stories in general in fantasy science fiction um you know with ender's game and stuff you do get that kind of the hero's journey you know from the the training montage and stuff how do you move away like how do you pick out ideas and be like okay i want to write about this um throw this idea away like how do you move forward with that guy that's in his prime and like kind of grow. At
1: the end of the day it's still the hero's journey but it's much more emotional than physical so you've still got someone who is like let's say emotionally stunted right? Um, Just like someone who is physically stunted. The farm boy who has no idea how to swing a sword is on a physical level exactly the same as the badass assassin who doesn't know how to tell people that you know that he cares about them or he doesn't actually understand that this thing that he's doing is something that's emotionally you know uh, mature so it's like you you follow the exact same progression the ups and downs the highs and lows but it's a far more emotional journey than it is a physical one obviously you throw in the challenges you know the call to action the physical call to action but then also the emotional call to action it's it kind of does follow the same exact script it's just taking it from a different perspective
0: okay well going back to Rhythm of War like Kaladin In that his physical journey doesn't progress, but it is his emotional. Like, you know, he's not out fighting the the parchment and stuff.
1: He's yeah. It's only it's it's sort of background to all of his emotional arc. Like that is actually a really good example of because he does fight. You know, there's that whole scene where he's fighting in, in the you know the stone tower at the end, and he's trying to he's trying to liberate the people and all that. But that is an an external manifestation of his internal struggles that internal war with himself with his nature with you know wanting to be a healer as well as a fighter all of that that is front and center for kaladin as a character and that is i think what makes so many people sort of instantly connect with the character is that this this struggle that he has is something that we all wrestle with on a really daily basis almost
0: so i'm going to relate it to another um series and you might agree might not agree but one of my favorite set of movies is the Rocky movies. Okay. And Rocky one is that hero's journey physical where he's, you know, training for Apollo and, and going through all this stuff. But Rocky four, even though it's, he does some physical training, it's more emotional for him. You know, he has to deal with Apollo's death. He has to be away from his family in Russia. And so do you, does that kind of make sense? Is it kind yeah, of totally, thing?
1: totally. You know, the, the, the journey is no less visceral because it's physical or emotional or mental or psychological or magical or spiritual. Whatever it is, that journey still holds true. You know, Frodo traveled across, across Middle-Earth to drop the ring into the fires of Mount Doom, but someone can literally, you know, have a massive journey of character and you know, only go a few blocks. Like there are stories, these slice of life stories that take place all within a few blocks or within a city or something, but the char- the story is no less gripping because we're sinking our teeth into the meat of the character because of their emotional stakes. So uh, that for me is the kind of story that I resonate with. Um, as a reader, the ones that that hook me are these ones that just that sink their teeth into, into some emotional aspect of my, myself, my personality, my brain, whatever it is, as opposed to, you know, identifying with the character physically or, or something like that.
0: What are some of your favorites? Can you think of any?
1: Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Offhand. Um, the one that I've loved most recently, actually I've got it right here. Dragon Mage by ML Spencer. Now this is a, an autistic main character who, who his skill is tying knots. It's one of the, you know, the, the ASD behaviors. He's just really, he's in uh, fascinated with knots. And it turns out that knots is how mani- magic manifests in his world. But he is he is an autistic character. And as someone with ASD myself, it's so interesting to see this character brought to life. And it's not like the character's autism is treated as a weakness. It's not like he's... Cured. It's just a part of who he is, and and the the author does an amazing job of depicting autism. Um, he is very high functioning. He is verbal, but he does have a lot of the same quirks and traits that that people who are severely limited by their autism have. So, honestly, it I burned through that book uh, a couple of weeks ago. I actually reached out to the author and said I need a copy. So she sent me a, a signed copy for my shelf. Um, another one that I actually really resonated with was the Bloody Rose. Um, that is the second in Nicholas Eames' The Band series. And the the first one, Kings of the Wild, you mentioned that in any any gathering of fantasy fans and five out of 10 of them will be familiar with it. And it's a great story. It's kind of old, retired heroes coming out of retirement to save the day. And it's it's got a lot of those themes of people who are past their primes sort of struggling with who they were versus who they are. And that was a really good one. But the the second one, Bloody Rose, had this this element of like found family, like this group of sort of freaks and outcasts got together to join, you know, form this adventuring monster slaying band. And that for me, it resonated so much more. Uh, the, the story, it, it ended up connecting with me much, much more deeply than the first one even though the characters in the first one were like me you know they were old oh uh-huh. you know they were they were guys they were warriors they were badasses but the characters even though they were younger or they were female or they had nothing in common with me their emotional journey that was something that i immediately connected with
0: that's awesome i haven't heard of the um who who's the author again of the second one?
1: nicholas eames e-a-m-e-s nicholas. amazing books
0: i'll have to look that up um i've I actually have an interview tomorrow with M.L. Spencer, so awesome! I'm excited.
1: Oh yeah, she's she's awesome, and and this story is one that, honestly, it it is one of the best books that I've read in the last year, and I'm saying this after reading um, Evan Winter's Rage of Dragons, which is awesome, and Pierce Brown's Red Rising. Like this book, in my opinion, stands up with those ones.
0: Awesome. Uh, we'll have to talk about it tomorrow, and I have an autistic son too, so. I can relate at multiple levels yeah. I guess.
1: <laughs> and like if you if you look through the pages of the book you'll immediately see a lot of the behaviors that I'm sure your son does. You know, it, it not every every autistic person is the same, but they have a lot of those same or we have a lot of those same traits in in common. So it was immediate like I immediately identified with the character and then when the when when the character was accepted for who he was not despite his ASD but just because That for me was like, all right, this is the story I want to read.
0: You're a pretty prolific writer. When did your first book come out? I kind of looked it up and it said 2018. Is that correct?
1: So it was actually released in 2015. 2015, Under a different title, different cover with a publisher, a small indie press. Uh-huh. that was when the first book came out. Um, the next book came out a year later, and then I had three books in 2017. But by 2017, I had kind of learned a lot more about the marketing and the ins and outs of the publishing game. So I got the rights to all those series back from the publishers and republished them myself in 2018.
0: Okay, so that's why it's yeah. coming out in 2018. Yeah. Uh, that's, I was going to ask, if you had like a whole bunch of novels in the hopper that you're just like, all right, I'm just, it's, just time to release them. But apparently yeah. he did, but you have other series that you have come out pretty consistently too. Yeah, What are some of your writing habits?
1: Um, so I work pretty consistently every day. I have three writing slots of two hours, like almost religiously, um, seven to nine, 10 to 12 and two to four 30 give or take, 2.30 to 4.30. And I structure my life around those. So I wake up in the morning and I get to work by seven. I have breakfast after nine. And by 10, I'm sitting back at my desk. And then I go to the gym between 12 and two and make lunch and then get back to work. And then after four or five, when I'm done writing, I am done for the day. So that's one thing that that sort of helped me to be really prolific in the sense that I am just sitting down for six solid hours a day and writing. And I also type fast because I worked as a, a copywriter and blogger for a few years before I got into writing. So I can I can type, like, type, write 2,000 words in an hour, hour and a half, if the story is really, really flowing. Some days it's, it's a bit harder, but on average, I can probably put down 20 000 to 40,000 words in a week, uh, depending on how, you know, on how motivated I am by the story or how much I pay attention to the specific details or it, it varies from week to week.
0: So this is your full-time job. You're able to- yeah. You're able to write um, as your as your job. That's yeah. awesome. Um, I've talked to other authors that haven't been able to do that yet. We've talked about you have to have a passion to be able to do your you know your normal day job, come home, do the family stuff, and then write from like nine to midnight and get up at yeah, five six sure. o'clock in the morning. On each day, do you have like a word count goal or on those times do you just sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to write whatever I do. That's it's, it? it.
1: It's a chapter goal. My chapters average 2000 to 2500 words. So I have everything outlined, you know, not a super consistent outline, like, okay, this is what he says. And then this is what he says, but just kind of the broad strokes of the story. So I kind of write to the chapter's end and I, you know, I always like to end on the, and then this happened kind of dramatic moment. Cause that, that way, when I start the next chapter it's immediately like thrust into the action or some big, you know, oh wow, what's going on moment. And that, that always helps me get started writing as opposed to, you know, ending the scene fades to black and then having to introduce a new scene with new setting and background. That kind of, that kind of makes me tired of writing from the very beginning. Whereas if I start from, you know the, the bad guy has got the sword ready to strike immediate action. Something has to happen. That for me just pulls me right into the story as a writer. And I think for, for readers, it does the same thing. You know, you get people saying, Oh my God, I couldn't breathe for the last 20,000 words because it just like, as soon as you think that it's over, it's not, it gets worse. That's kind of my, my approach to writing. It always gets worse.
0: So when you're writing a novel, do you know about how many words you want it to be? Like, do you say, okay, like I, this book, I just kind of want it to be 90,000 words. And if it runs over, I'm gonna edit it down to ninety thousand. Or do you are you one of those authors that are like, however long the story takes, that's how long it takes.
1: So I'll usually outline the story ahead of time and I'll know, yeah, within a, a reasonable amount how long it's gonna take me to tell the story based on how many chapters I get. You know, because the, the chapters are kind of the various act structures and I know that by chapter forty, whatever, we're getting into the climax and by chapter fifty it's ready to be wrapped up. But then sometimes, and this is what's happening with the book I'm working on right now, the story just gets longer because it takes more time to tell a specific scene. So um, for an example, right now the, the, the assassin is facing off against demons. And I wrote this, I outlined this scene to end in two chapters, but to really hit those highs and lows, to make it look like he is absolutely going to lose and he's going to die, and then he doesn't, and then he, you know, oh, my God, just like, oh, what is going on? Just that sort of nonstop adrenaline rush of a well-crafted story, it's going to take four chapters. So now this 2,000, I mean, 4,000 chunk is now 8,500 words. So the the book that I'm setting, I set out to write was supposed to be around 200,000 words, and right now it's at 230 and it'll probably be closer to 250 by the time I'm done just because I need to give each of those scenes time to breathe and really, really dwell on all of the important topics, whether it's the emotional arc of the character. You know, he's, he's about to die. What does he feel when he's about to die? What goes through his head when he experience that? And then he doesn't die. How, what, so they're like, like everything I really give each scene time to breathe. And that usually makes the story longer. I don't think I've edited down anything in my life. It usually ends up being longer.
0: Fair enough. I noticed on your website that you have a list of other assassin type books. Are those some of your favorites or have you, that's those are a lot of books. Have you been able to read all those? I
1: have not. I have not. Honestly, I've read maybe half of them um i'm listening to one of them now on audiobook the waylander series by david gemmel i've had people recommend david gemmel to me for years and i'm finally getting around to reading it and some of the other ones like the night angel series or malazan or some of the like the better known ones i have gotten around to reading and even some of the indie published ones there are people who are my friends and i only got to read them those books because my friend said hey here's my book you know would you read it for a review but but that is actually like an seo uh Thing where people who search fantasy assassin my website comes up pretty high in the ranking so that they can find out about my fantasy assassin that was done obviously because i love assassins and more people should read them
0: no that's awesome it was a good shout out to you know other people as well you know like you said seo thing they've searched that and you still come up so you were traditionally published first did that company an indie publisher did that go under or did you just decide they weren't doing it the way you wanted it
1: um so the one that was doing the Hero of Darkness series or what is now the Hero of Darkness series it was more of a horror based imprint so uh-huh. they were they were kind of they kind of ended up going in a different direction okay so they were they were happy to give my rights back the other one that was doing my Thief series um the the term of contract was short it was only a year so um, it was basically expired when I got the rights back, and they were happy because they're they're more of a, a romance imprint. They were they were thinking of doing a more fantasy oriented sub imprint, but they didn't end up doing that. So they focused entirely on romance, and they were happy to give my rights back. I was I was lucky that both of the publishers were pretty good about uh, returning that because of the you know the directions the publishing house was taking.
0: Okay, because I know. If I would have went through that, and this situation is a little bit different. I talked to another author who was traditionally published and the company folded. And for me, I think that would have been a little bit heartbreaking because, you know, you kind of dream going into Barnes & Noble and seeing your book next to your idols. And then all of a sudden that's not going to happen. I just think we live in a cool age to where we can take those back and be in control of them.
1: Absolutely. And no, no product is ever truly dead. Like the series that I'm working on right now, the one that I'm working on right now is actually the first book in my assassin series. I'm rewriting it because it was my first book, you know, 40 books ago, I've progressed a lot as a writer. So I want to tell that story better and it's going to be twice as long because that's how, how it's shaken out. But I'm, I'm relaunching the series again for the second time because I wanted to to make these first two or three books in the series just the best I possibly can, because I've got another six or seven books to write afterward. So that's the beauty of, of doing this whole self-publishing thing is that I can relaunch as often as I, as I, can you know can afford to or is is wise essentially as long as it's not just like, you know, trying the same thing over and over again. And, you know, that would be madness. So the idea is is taking the product that I know is is evergreen, the core of what it is is this assassin who kind of has this heart of gold secretly. He's also a total badass. He's got this emotional journey that everybody seemed to resonate with. I'm going to make it super cool. And then I'm going to put it back out there with updated covers, you know, something that is, is current in the market that will hopefully last and sort of make a splash to the same degree that my favorite assassin series, like night angel did.
0: Right. How do you go about finding cover artists and because you're in control. I mean, you have to pay for editors and all that. Do you have beta readers for your first round of edits or do you? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I have I have beta readers and I have ARC readers who catch the, the typos that exist after the editor's already gone through it. So it goes beta readers, editor, ARC readers to catch all those final typos, which, you know, sometimes they still slide through and that's just part of the publishing life. Finding a cover artist is a very, very difficult process because you can find lots of cheap cover artists and lots of good cover artists, but you can't usually find good, cheap cover artists. You can never, it's its very hard to find someone who falls in that Venn diagram of perfection, essentially good and cheap. So um, I've, I've auditioned a lot of, of cover artists by basically saying, here's what I want, see what you can do. You know, you have to spend a bit of money to sort of, it's not exactly a gamble, it's like a test you have to pay them to make the covers and you, you know, you try to find someone who you think will do a produce a good product. And maybe they're not the artist that you think you, you know, that, that you're going to end up with. So you have to pay another artist. It's, it's not a perfect system, but it's the way that that you end up with a cover that is just
0: gold. Yeah. And your covers are pretty good. I, I
1: I'm very, very happy with the covers of my box. That's all of my, my standalone books. They need to be, relaunched with new covers because those covers are outdated you know in 2018 when i launched all of that that photo manipulation style was current now it's outdated mm-hmm. people don't do photo manipulation anymore so to, in order to make these products feel brand new i need to put new covers on them and do a relaunch but i'm doing that one at a time starting with the assassin one, which is the product that i know is the most viable
0: well here's the thing about self-publishing that i think a lot of people don't know when they're starting out is Like you said, you need to update the covers. Like you always have to stay constant and pay attention to the market.
1: Mm. 100%. And the market changes so fast. It could literally be from one year to the next. Box sets a year ago were the rage. They would make so much money. Now Amazon is, it looks like Amazon is suppressing box sets, especially 99 cent box sets. So all of a sudden a product that was amazing and super successful in 2019 2020 is no longer a viable product so it's it's very it, it's almost as much work to do the self-publishing thing as to write a book it's why a lot of people prefer just to go the route of traditional publishing because they don't have to do that second half of the work of learning all the marketing and advertising and cover design and editing and formatting and uploading and you know like it is so involved and and it's it's absolutely valid a lot of people just want to focus on the writing, but. If you just focus on the writing, it's a lot harder to succeed in the author world. So for those who are serious about success, if your goal is to go the traditionally published route, great, do that. But also learn about the self-publishing route of the marketing and advertising, all the business side of things, so that your chances of succeeding are doubled.
0: So how do you go about researching what the market is That doing? is
1: something that... You just kind of have to look on, uh, on on Amazon and see what is selling. So when I got my cover artist to design the, the covers for these relaunched books, what I did is I looked at all the covers that were selling and the covers of all my favorite books. And I said, here, do these, but better. And And, and right now, really, the only thing that you can look at is the books that are selling. So, for example, Dragon Mage. Dragon Mage is selling great, which is amazing because it's an awesome book. So stories like this, stories that have representation, that show things that uh, a lot of the world aren't familiar with, these are the kind of stories that would hit the market or that could hit the market really well. And then you put a beautiful cover on it that's based on, you know, that's similar to other fantasy covers out there or that hit a vibe of nostalgia for the more classic styles of fantasy. You know, you you can kind of just look at what's there and see what's popular and emulate that as best you can.
0: Well, I think that, you know, the dark side, it's not really a dark side. We all have to make money and you have to be able to sell what you write. You can't just say I'm a published mm-hmm. author and put it on Amazon. And
1: I'll say if you're not selling books, no one's reading your books. So it's not, even if it's not about the money, money is the proof that your work is doing what you want it to, which is connecting with people and engaging readers and making them feel something. If a book isn't selling, no matter how great it is, it's not doing what you wrote it to do. So the the, the goal of an author is not necessarily to make money. Obviously, you've got to make money to live, but money is the proof that you're doing it right.
0: Right. To me, um, the more value you add to somebody, the more money you'll make. Especially if you can Absolutely. connect with lots of people. so Absolutely. as what you were saying, like look on Amazon, see what's selling. Obviously, there's lots of people that find value in that story. So if that is interesting to you, I mean, for me, I'm not going to write a paranormal romance. You know, nope. that, that's not something that interests me That's I don't relate. Yeah. But if I can find something that's uh, sword and sorcery magic that might have a little romance, I can do that. Or, you know, an assassin or, you know, I used to be a corrections officer and I could, you know, something that has to do with the military or police force or something like that. Like that stuff that if find kind of what genre that's in and and see what you can do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that that's called writing to market. You just look at what the market's interested in and you give it to them. And that is the way that you make that, that. That's the way that you have the potential to make a lot of money very, very quickly. It's not always a gamble that pays off. And sometimes you end up writing something that flops and that's just the way it is because maybe the market's moved on or you didn't hit it as effectively as you thought. Whatever the case, there are evergreen stories too that will last sort of forever because they they tell a kind of story that people love. And so like the the young you know, zero to hero kind of story is one that is honestly super evergreen because everybody remembers characters like Aragon or Fitzchivalry Farseer or the Wheel of Time, you know, cast and crew. These are the kind of stories and, and characters like uh, the Mandalorian. Like the Mandalorian is this lone gunslinger, badass with a heart of gold trope that everybody loves because what's not to love about it? And so the Hero of Darkness series with the Hunter, it hits that same trope. Um, the Witcher hits that same trope. All of these stories, they do it. And that's what makes it so easy to connect to. So some of them are evergreen and some of them are more popular. Like um, there was a time when unicorn shifters were super in or, you know, lion shifters or whatever. And now it's moved on to something else entirely. So there are certain trends that remain evergreen and some that flare up really high. Like some of these, these unicorn romance shifter authors, they made a ton of money, sold a ton of books. And then their series are just totally dead in the water now because the market's moved on. So there's there's kind of two ways to approach the business side of writing a story.
0: Well, hopefully, as an author, you don't hedge all your bets on that. Like, you have multiple series.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but some of the series, so like, for example, the Heirs of Destiny series. It's a young adult characters. The series is written for both adults and young adults in mind, but I wanted to capitalize on that kind of market of the, you know, zero to hero or the young characters growing up and and coming into their powers. And the series sold not as well as I would have liked, but it sold enough that it was worth, you know, the time and, and money invested. But now it's not selling as well as the other ones because the other ones are a more evergreen concept. So it's all about kind of looking at the most viable product and focusing your efforts on that.
0: How do you do your launches?
1: I mean, that's a super, super involved question. You know, lots of ads, lots of newsletter swaps, lots of uh, posting about it on social media, sharing it to my newsletter, um, running a, a freebie on like book funnel story origin to build newsletters, subscribers, just kind of all the standard tricks. There's a lot of books on Amazon by successful authors that you can look up. You can probably just Google, you know, book launches and look for the names or look for the books that are selling the best. And those are the ones that are written by successful authors.
0: Right. I was just wondering, um, do you know of an author named Chris Fox? Of course. Yeah. So he writes like books, like right to market and Launching yeah. and stuff. And he's got a really good YouTube channel for people. If you haven't checked that out, check that out. He's got a a Great YouTube channel. Lots of
1: really good stuff. I still check it out all the time. I still watch all those videos because there's always some little nugget of awesome in there that I take away from it.
0: Right. How often do you check like your Amazon statistics and rankings as you're l- launching?
1: Oh, I never check. I never check my rankings. I check the sales. The sales daily. I mean, right on the launch, I'll usually check pretty regularly, but but it, like after a few weeks when the launch itself is kind of over and you're kind of either maintaining rank and sales or you're kind of dropping off, you kind of see that's when I stop checking it. I focus more on the the daily income because for me, it's about how much I'm earning versus how much I'm spending on ads and marketing and stuff. And as long as I'm, you know, keeping consistent, that's kind of all I need to, to focus on. And I'm always working on writing the next book. Like I launch a book and I'm already, you know, three books into the series or, by the time the series is done, I'm halfway into the next series. That's kind of how I work. I'm always six months ahead.
0: That's awesome. I think that's important because you kind of have to stay, well, like you said, like you can't maintain and go down. Like if you keep having a, a series coming out, a book, you're always fresh in people's mind.
1: Yeah. That's the idea.
0: That's kind of like the, the business side, like figuring out what works for advertising and marketing and, and what doesn't, and you kind of have to stay up on that.
1: Absolutely. And it is, again, that is more time consuming and more stressful than the writing, like all the stress that goes into writing and telling an amazing story into writing these complex emotions and all of that is exhilarating and draining, but the business side of things is just mostly draining. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's your own hero's journey, right? That's what you're going through. You're like, if-
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm still, I'm still just kind of floundering through the second act. The inciting incident is when I started writing. We'll see what happens when I get to, you know, the, the precipice and, and succeed. And then I get to enjoy my, you know, my, my writing off into the sunset moment after I'm a bazillionaire.
0: Right. Good luck with that. I want (laughs) to, it's a good thing I'm interviewing now. So like when you're a bazillionaire, I can interview again.
1: (laughs) Exactly. The before and after.
0: Yeah. The
1: post bazillionaire interview.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to go back in your childhood. Okay. Do you remember like your gateway? Like what was the first sort of fantasy or science fiction thing that you remember either watching or reading or like, you can remember watching something and then reading something that you're like, Holy cow. So there's two
1: paths that that led me here first of them is chronicles of narnia just like straight up chronicles of narnia first delving into fantasy loved every single minute of it actually my favorite book in the series is the horse and his boy because there was no real world stuff it was all set in fantasy world so it was a hundred percent fantasy as opposed to the more portal side of things from the other six books so that one like like that series just immediately made me fall in love with every aspect of fantasy as a genre. but then when I was about 10 years old my dad bought me the Sherlock Holmes books like the complete the complete works of Sherlock Holmes and I binge read that thing hard like it's a massive book and I read it in like a week you know around school I didn't I didn't really play sports those days because I was reading I didn't have dinner because I was reading like it was it was an awesome week And so from there Sherlock Holmes kind of led me to Tarzan, from Tarzan to John Carter of Mars and John Carter of Mars is this gorgeous mixture of swords and guns and spaceships and science and heroism. And it's basically, it's called sword and science is the, is the name or or sword and spaceship. And from there I was like, oh, there's this dude who's killing people with swords and being a total badass. I need more of this. And so from there it was uh, the, the the next logical leap was to Conan and Solomon Kane and Kane and all of these classics and so by then I was just drawn in I I, I dabbled a bit in sci-fi but um for a while bayon books the big publisher they have actually they still have on their website just this massive catalog of books that you can read for free and i would spend hours on that site just reading everything i could get my hands on and so that i was by then i was just absolutely hooked on fantasy as a genre and i you know i still love sci-fi i still uh dally in the genre occasionally there's you know when there's a good book that draws my attention but fantasy is the one that just keeps me riveted
0: Same with me, like not your journey, but I love fantasy. I like, I like science fiction, but like, I love fantasy. It's my, it's my go-to. There's nothing like it in the world. Yeah. What about like movies and stuff? Did you?
1: So where I grew up, we didn't have access to a lot of, of movies. I didn't really go to the cinema much. Um, The first movie that I saw in the cinema was Mask of Zorro, but I was, I was like 11 years old. And I, I loved that. I still love that movie. And, you know, it had everything. It had the humor. It had the fights. It had the romance. It had the tension, the drama, all of that stuff. And that just kind of solidified my love. And then there was, you know, like, oh, I got the, the novelized version of Robin Hood, the one with Kevin Costner. And that one was so much darker than the actual real version of Robin Hood. And I loved that. So it's like books were the thing that drew me in. When Lord of the Rings came out, I think I was in my late teens, early 20s. And, and I, I fell in love immediately, but I had read the books so many times already that it was, you know, it was the books that drew me in more than the movies.
0: Me too. I would always like my, my the very first like thick, like adult book that I read was in fourth grade and it was the princess bride. And, oh, I, and I watched nice. that because or I read that because of the movie and I was like, I love this.
1: And I so, love that movie.
0: Yeah. And so my mom bought me the book and Okay. From there, like I read that and it was so different than the, than the movie. Like, I mean, it had a, a lot of the same things like most movies do when it's adapted from a yeah. book, but it was so different that I was like, well, maybe like these book thing is probably better. And so that's, you know, my mom bought me, um, the Lord of the Rings box set, which had the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings. And so okay. in fifth grade, and that's when I, I, I read those. And then I went into my best friend across the street was reading the sword of Shannara. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna read that. Nice. And so, and then like the year later, this is another book, um, adaptation or it's not a book adaptation, but the, the book is an adaptation of a movie was hook. hook? And I, I love hook with Robin okay. Williams and Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah. But I read the book and, uh, I th- I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say, I think Terry Brooks wrote that. Okay. But I'm not sure, but I was a huge Terry Brooks fan and, and it was so different. I was like, Oh man books are way better.
1: Yeah. Honestly, that's that's the thing that I found when I read Lord of the Rings versus watching Lord of the Rings. I loved the Lord of the Rings movie, but it was 3 hours of my life. The book, you know, it took me it took me 12 hours. I was I was out of my mind happy for 12 hours. Actually, I think the year that I got that, I had broken my arm. And so while every, all of my, you know, my friends and family were in the pool and at water parks, I couldn't do that because I was, you know, in a cast. So all I had was books. And so I, like I, I blazed through that, that trilogy because I had no access to to movies or anything. Books were the thing that kept me from being utterly miserable. that summer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a better value for your money too, I think. Absolutely. 12 hours on a book and three hours in a movie for the same amount of money, basically. Yeah.
1: You know, and yeah, I, I will. I will never bash movies and TV because so much of my entertainment comes from that right now. Like, I'm I'm a pretty hardcore not TV addict, but I watch a lot of TV because it it shuts down my brain from writing. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who I'm always thinking, always on, so I need something like TV to to shut down my brain. But it's also great for just getting a different a, a feel for people and characters and different storylines. Like, some of my best ideas have come from TV shows.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And if you're a writer. And wanting to write, getting in the habit of writing is hard. Just like any habit, any, any good habit is hard to do. Any bad habits, easy to do yeah. on my, I'm starting a YouTube channel in, con- in conjunction with the, this podcast. And one of the challenges that I'm going to do is find a script of a TV show you like that's mm-hmm. half hour, or 40 minutes and write a novel, like novelize it just to wow. get in the habit.
1: That's interesting.
0: When I do it, there's probably going to be like one viewer, so I might get zero submissions. But like, I would like to see people do it and, and and see how they succeed.
1: That could be a really interesting thing, right? I mean, the two mediums are very, very different. Writing a script for a TV show is vastly different from writing a novel. Um, I talk with this with my brothers about this all the time. One brother is a Uh, a creative writing or journalism major and the other one's an actor. So they're kind of the two opposite ends of the spectrum. One of them has no fiction in his life and everything is about facts and presenting it. And the other one is all about, you know, portraying the things. And so they, they talk about the difference between like what I, what I do in a novel, it could take me 10,000 words to do a scene that my, my actor brother really only has two or three minutes to portray and maybe a hundred words to actually say. So it's a super interesting thing to see the differences between the various uh, entertainment and communication mediums.
0: Right. And so I think it'd be interesting to see what people do with that. Like if they get a script, yeah. of it, especially something they see, cause they can kind of reference Yeah, but they could make changes too. I'd even do like um, if you're a huge fantasy, I mean, you can get famous plays like um, Midsummer Night's dream, you know, get Shakespeare, do something. You know that you already have access to.
1: Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, or Othel- oh, Othello. Othello. That would be a story to bring to to life, or or Hamlet, even. Just one of those ones that have a lot more drama to them, and seeing how they would they would feel in when done as a novel.
0: Right. See, and I did this in my own life. I did this with uh, Much Ado About Nothing, just to try. Like I just needed to get in the habit nice. of writing. So, and it was very beneficial to me. So that's why I want to challenge people to do it because if you're trying to get in the habit, you don't have to worry about plot. You don't have to worry about, I mean, even if you want to use the same dialogue, go ahead, like just, just get in your chair and start writing.
1: Another, another thing that some authors do and have done is they take a novel that they loved and they just type it out word for word. And what that does is it shows them, it sort of hammers into their brain, how this author that they love and this story that connected with them how it's, how it's crafted, you know, the word choice, the way that the sentences are structured, um, the way the characters talk, the movement, all of that stuff. It's like um, I've never done that because I just like sat down and started writing, but Mm -hmm. a lot of my author friends, they were like, yeah. So when I first started out, I would take the first 10 chapters of a book that I loved and I would spend time every day typing out those chapters. And it really gives you a feel for how, how these things are structured and how they're done.
0: That's a, you know, I think, as long as you're getting out and doing something not getting out but like as long as you're doing something towards your goal yeah even if it, you kind of have to backtrack and you know work on 10 chapters of somebody else's book or adapt a screenplay you're going to be so much further along in the long run i think and and be able to have that habit so that you can actually do what you want to do
1: Absolutely. Another, another really good thing that actually helped me for a while was there's these apps that you can download that will set a clock for 25 minutes.
0: The Pomodoro. And,
1: Yeah, exactly. And you just write for 25 minutes, you get 10 words out. Great. You get a thousand words out, 10,000 words, however many you get out in those 25 minutes. And then you stand up and you walk away mm-hmm. with that, with that feeling of contentment that you did the work. And that's how I, how I've always approached writing, how I still approach writing when I'm done Whether it's, you know, it's, I've been working for half an hour and I hammered out that whole chapter in that little bit of time and I'm done. I get up and I walk away and I go do something else. I'll go to the gym. Um, I'll do something that just sort of gets my mind out of the writing space and into another space. And then I'll come back and sit down and I'll be fresh. And it helps me get things done a lot more quickly without there being the pressure of, I need to write until this scene is done or until this chapter is done or until whatever it is it's just write until this twenty five minute thing is over, no matter how much you get out just keep writing keep working on it and then your twenty five minutes is done mentally you can clear your brain and go do something else
0: um let's go back to your um your outline like how much do you outline do you do lots of research beforehand or do you just kind of plot out certain plot like I know there's different styles of of plotting like you got the Dan Harman uh, circle you got the hero's journey dan wells does a really good one
1: i don't I don't do any of those. No? What do you do? I, I, I don't know. I've always kind of felt the story. Okay. Which which may lead to difficulties. You know, like it may not be as as awesome as it is if it was Hero journeyed or, you know, the Pixar 30 Steps or whatever it is. I just, I kind of feel what the story needs. And so I just kind of plot that out. I'll always, you know, make sure that there's plenty of obstacles to make sure that the hero's victory is well earned. And, and the... The actual outline doesn't always include what those are. It usually deals more with the physical side of things in the sense that here's where the hero needs to go, what they need to do, because I know that as I write the story... I'm gonna focus on the emotions I, I my, my my style as a writer is to really dive deep into the character's head so everything is is deep third point of view uh, with lots of internal dialogue and the the narrative all f- often is just part of the internal thought process of the character um, so I'll actually walk myself on this emotional or psychological journey as the character is going through it and then always make sure that the writing, is easily, you know, it's easy for for readers to connect to that. So I know that I'm going to include those, those emotional things. So I don't usually plot them out. Sometimes I will, if it's uh, an important, you know, emotional arc that ties in or reflects the physical arc, then I'll make sure to to include that in. But for the most part, it's more focused on just the, the action highs and lows and stuff.
0: So do you have anything that you have kind of cemented? Like, do you have an ending that you want to do that you kind of start with like, and build guideposts from there.
1: Sometimes every story is kind of different. So I always have to have somewhere to start. I've always got to have a character. Once I know who my character is, that kind of informs the decision because everything that I do is about doing the opposite of what the character is. So he's strong. He's going to have to end up being weak, right? Uh, He's a badass with the sword. What happens when you take away his sword and he's got to fight barehanded against someone who's better than him? You know, it's it's always about throwing the opposite at him and or or her and so that's kind of what i think about when i sit down to write the character or the outline it's like all right the character is in this setting right now i've, I've established who this character is in my head i know what they're going to be dealing with now i need to throw the opposite at them and that's sort of the inciting incident that sets them down the path and then it's just all kind of playing more and more to that the, whatever the character is not good at make them do that so maybe maybe they just want to kill people but they are terrible at the investigation but all of a sudden they can't figure out who to kill and so they've got to investigate that's the struggle the, t- the conflict the tension that's kind of what i what i think about and then as i'm writing it the emotional arc kind of shapes the story maybe it changes things maybe it affects the way that i tell a specific scene maybe it even changes a whole two-thirds of the book which has happened before but knowing sort of the action highs and lows, it gives me gets me where I need to go towards that ending. Sometimes I'll have that ending before I sit down to write and I got to figure out how to get there from the beginning, or I will have no idea how it ends beyond sort of a vague idea. But then as I go through the story, the outline kind of informs the ending or the you know the continuation it's kind of every every time i sit down to outline a story or a series which i often do it's kind it kind of ends up going a different way so there's not really a, a one size fits all answer to that one
0: <laughs> but you, would it be fair to say that you always begin with the character 100%
1: no matter what happens any story it always starts with the character so when i started writing the hero of darkness series i knew i wanted a badass assassin with a cool dagger and he was a loner and no one knew who he was so you know all mysterious no one had seen his face and lived you know just all that dramatic stuff but then no one's seen his face so then all of a sudden he's an outsider he's a loner he has nobody in his life Ooh, that's good that's a good emotional arc to play on now let's give him people that are in his life maybe he doesn't think of them as in his life so there's all these beggars who live inside his building that he's using for camouflage so no one would think to look for the badass assassin in this building full of beggars and lepers and stuff okay now he's got all these people let's make him actually alone and kill all these people who's doing this? so it's all it's kind of every decision every f- emotional decision kind of leads to something else that makes the story great beyond the action scenes
0: when you have a character like that and you want to You know, make him weaker or whatever you want to do, you know, have friends, make him alone. That drives the plot, too. Mm -hmm. So right there, you can have two of the from Brandon Sanderson, like two of the three things, plot character and setting. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. The setting is the least important of the things because you just make the setting based on what the character is. You know, this like like I just told you, the, the, the guy, he needs people to camouflage him. So all of a sudden he lives in a warehouse sized building. And it's crumbling because no one's going to think to look for him there, but in the middle of the building, there's this little, like, safe room kind of apartments thing. And all of a sudden, you've got the settings of the story right there. Like, it's just all those things kind of inform one another. So it kind of leads into this sort of snowball effect where you put one detail, it leads to another, and it leads to another, and the story... I'm not going to say it creates itself because it does take, you know, some actual work and thought, but in a way when you've trained your mind to think like this, to keep pulling on the threads, to keep, you know, taking the next step, it kind of presents itself one piece at a time until you've got this complete. And, you know, you can go from a tiny little story about one person in a room to the world's about to end. What are we going to do? It's just one step at a time.
0: And for the setting, like, I, re- I read that you don't have a map in any of your books.
1: So I actually, I have a map in the military. I have a map in the military fantasy series because you can't have armies marching unknown distances and have it meaningful. You know, this army needs to be here in two days, but it's a four-day journey. That's tension right there, right? So that's that's right. that's, for the military series, it had to happen for my for my other series on the main world, none of them are very specific about locations. It's not like you need to know the exact distance of things. You know, it's a five day journey, a 12 day journey. How fast is he going? Doesn't really matter. It's kind of all of that. But then with every series, there's these new interesting bits and pieces that I want to keep adding on. So the minute that I make a map and outline the whole continent, that's the day that I'm stuck. I can't do anything else cool. Like every series, I want to add another city I do it and because there's no map, I have the total freedom. As long as I remember sort of where in context with the rest of the places that I've put onto this thing, that's okay.
0: So is this, do you have like an end to this, I guess, multiple series? Like, do you have an end that, you know, like you're just going to...
1: No, how? Like the beauty of this undefined world is that there's no end of stories. I want a new continent. I make a new continent. I want a new city 10 hours away from one city, as long as I haven't said that there's no other cities within that distance, it's okay. So this is, this is one reason that I continue to leave it less defined because I wanna keep adding. Um, series that have come up right now in, the, in my Queen of Thieves series, there's the city that's kind of all about steel. So it's like technologically advanced because of the alchemy. And now I wanna write this sort of Count of Monte Cristo style story in this city but because I didn't define what the city is beyond the fact that it comes, it makes this really cool steel. I have this whole new landscape to play with. Um, there's this country that produces wine. It's like, sort of like the French, uh, you know, wine regions or the Italian wine regions. And now I can do sort of a um, the, the wars that, you know, ravaged the hundred years war in Europe because I haven't defined these things. The minute you start defining things, that's when you are limited and the, for me as the author who wants to keep connecting everything like everything is interconnected in the military series it's across the sea but characters from all the other series have made this journey across the sea for the reason of fighting the war or the hunter actually comes from the mid-city where he lives to kill somebody in the city and he clashes with the main characters like it's the more that i can keep building in it the more i can connect everything tightly together and for me as a reader i love that i love that in marvel comics when wolverine pops up on the x-men or spider man teams up with the fantastic four you know right so that's how i want to write these stories the more that i can make them tied together the better
0: and it's nice because you can do like you said like you got the still place you got the wine place like you can do so much more like building on like I don't know, have a land of Viking-like characters or exactly. whatever. Exactly. It, it, it keeps it fresh.
1: And you never run out of room to play. And that, that for me, like one of the hardest things when I said about writing my second series was, okay, I've created this world that I love. I've created this religion. I've created this society. I've created this whole field. Now, if I want to write in another world, I have to do all of that again. Or I could set it in the same world and have everything interconnected, and that for me, that realization is one of the things that I that that made me want to go the route of self-publishing because I can do this. I don't have to do anything, uh, you know, consecutive. I can set it, you know, time. I can set it location. I can kind of do whatever I want with it, and everything is interconnected because it's my world.
0: I think yeah, that's fantastic. I don't know if you ever play Magic the Gathering, but that's I think. One of the things that I love about it is because yeah. it can go to different worlds and keep growing and, you know, you can find different things exactly. to, to enjoy.
1: And hey, I even connected my sci-fi universe to it. In the second book, the character is flying from his home planet to the planet where he grew up and one planet over is this off-limits world that no one's allowed to visit, you know, like the Star Trek rules because it's 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 a primitive planet and there's volatile energy readings, which is magic. So all, anytime I want, I can just have my, my sci-fi assassin character crash land on the fantasy planet, and he can team up with any one of my characters or the characters, they can see, you know, a shooting star flying overhead. And in the sci-fi series, the guy's crash landing inside the world or his plane's on fire and he's flying over. You know, you, you can tie everything together. There's always a way to tie things together.
0: And that is the beauty with science fiction and fantasy. Exactly. you can do stuff like that. Exactly. So when you're not riding, what do you like to do?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, You know, probably reading has been my go-to for the last while. Uh, I moved to Canada about three years ago and I took up snowboarding and loved it. Uh, I got into kayaking last year, rivers, lakes, all of that. Love that. Um, TV cooking. I love to cook. Actually, when we're done here, I got to go cook dinner for, for the kids and stuff.
0: Sorry for taking up your time. No, no,
1: that's, that's <laughs> totally fine. None of them are home. They're all, they're all teenagers. So
0: oh, okay. they come,
1: they come home when they come home, but you know, I, I live a really quiet, some would say boring, but I say simple life. And that that makes me happy because I, I sit down and I have all the excitement I want in the pages of my stories. And then I get up and book or watch TV or something.
0: <laughs> do you find that when you're reading or listening to a book that, that kind of influences the way you write or how do you like control that? So it doesn't,
1: it does. And it doesn't. So, Um, TV does that too. I had to stop watching. There's a show called seal team and, and I could not watch it at night because it always gave me an idea. Like literally every episode in the first season gave me an idea for my military fantasy series. So I had to not watch it at night because I would literally be up until two or three in the morning writing down ideas and my brain would be going. So, so when I, when I read sometimes the, the, the tone of, or the flavor of the book seeps in Um, the hard part for me with reading is that I have a hard time shutting off my editor's brain. Like I'm so used to editing my own writing as I write it that I can't stop doing that when I'm reading someone else's book. So it takes a really good book to shut that part of my brain off.
0: That's good, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. But it's it's tough to find really good books.
1: It is. Well, you know, I'm going to say that it's not that hard because there are so many great books out there. I just haven't Read them all yet? Yeah, like I just, um, I just f- just started reading John Gwynn's Malice. It's the first book in, I think it's like a four book series, and then another three or four book series, and then he's just coming out with like the third series of three or four. So it's this massive world that I'm gonna get to dive into. I'm enjoying it's. I'm.
0: Malice is awesome. Yeah, that's I'm the only about, one that I've read.
1: I'm about a, t- a tenth of the way into it. Ten percent in. And it still hasn't hooked me, but, you know, I'm not thinking about the editing and all of that. So I'm just going to keep reading it until, you know, people say that it gets great later on in the book. I'll keep pushing through until it finally hooks me.
0: Do you find that you run across less editorial mistakes in traditional publishing than self-published books?
1: I mean, I want to say yes, because I can only think of a few books that I've read recently that have mistakes like that, like typos, but that could be more to do with the formatting. Like I think the actual like proofreading and stuff of the editorial of, of the trad pub goes through more, more rounds of proofreading and stuff. Um, and the formatting is much more precise, but at the same time I've, I've found mistakes in, in all of these books that I've read, you know, be they indie or trad pub. So it's definitely not, not noticeably less.
0: That's good. I just find that I don't know because I'm not in a published author yet, but because you have to pay yourself, like you have to find a reputable editor and that I, I, I feel like that could be hard, but I think, it you is. know, talking to other authors, if you're friends with other authors, they can recommend. Yeah.
1: Finding a good editor. Once you find a good editor, I will say they are worth their weight in gold. You keep them on, on retainer forever. Like I've, I, I have an editor that I've worked with for four years now. And, and I, and he knows my writing style. I know his editing style and he, you know, he raises his rates. I pay those rates because he is worth it. Same as a cover artist, you know, unless the, unless the cover artist, you know, doubles their price. If it's someone who is worth working with, then you, you know, you pay them what they're worth.
0: No, for sure. I mean, you want to be paid what you're worth too. Absolutely. So I noticed on your, your website, you have a, a Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, you know, tell us about that.
1: Um, so it's actually it, I had to shut it down. Um, I, I ran a Twitch based Dungeons and Dragons podcast arranged in questing, but it was just I was having so much fun with it, but it took up so much of my time and it was it was a lot of stress, so I had to shut that down, sadly. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> it was fun. I got to play a dwarf and I got to do the accent and wear a helmet and everything. It was it was honestly amazing.
0: Well, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah, hopefully in the future you might be able to to find yeah. a way to build that back up. It's and then you have like, a podcast.
1: Uh, again, another thing that that had to go by the wayside just because of the time invested. This is something that that I have always struggled with as an author and someone who works from home is just wanting to do so many things at once. And the writing has to take precedence. And And for the last couple of years, I've noticed that it's all the, the other things that has added or compounded the stress of writing. So I'm kind of taking a break from those things to focus on the writing. And then once I'm done, to just relax, to be with my family, to focus more on you know on taking care of the house and you know my final years with the kids before they move out, all of that.
0: Yeah, finding a place where you can not have stress is important. How has this pandemic affected you? Is there, has your sales been okay? Has your family been okay?
1: Um, family's been good. My wife was home for a couple of months when her clinic shut down. The sales did drop ever across the board. Everyone's seen a drop in sales. Um, but overall, like my writing days were totally unaffected to the point where I was like looking at all these people sitting home, you know, for a month or two playing video games, watching Netflix, and I'm sitting there working. I'm like, why couldn't I have one of those jobs where I get paid to do nothing? You know, in fact, I was, I think more productive throughout the pandemic than I, than I am now. That's good. Cause there wasn't much else to do.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's all you had to do is just sit at home. In 2021, are you able to. Do you have any plans of going anywhere, any conventions or anything?
1: No, no, there, there aren't really any conventions happening. So, and, and also I'm in Canada and the travel restrictions are a little bit stringent. Like you're not like you have to quarantine for 14 days after coming back. And my wife couldn't do that with her job. Uh, It wouldn't affect me to do that, but, but it's also just, it's, it's a bit more of a hassle now than it was before. So it just makes more sense for me to, to stay home and get some writing done.
0: Nice. So tell everybody how they can get a hold of you or uh, places to go to see you.
1: Yeah, for sure. If you just Google my name, Andy Pelliquin, you can find me. My website is andypelliquin.com. I'm on Amazon as Andy Pelliquin, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook author page. My reader group is Andy Pelliquin's Literary Legionnaires. You can, that's, that's kind of where I do most of my hanging out. I post pretty much daily, chat with people, updates, spoilers on my books. You know, it's, just, it's the place to find me.
0: Perfect. Well, I appreciate you getting on and talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.